Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is my colleague, Joe Healy. And as we record this uh, on, what is today, July 20th, the draft is in our rearview mirror. Uh, the MLB draft wrapped up yesterday, that is Tuesday, um, with uh, with all 20 rounds being, being in the books. And so that is what Joe and I are here to discuss today. Uh, the effects of the draft on college baseball and just kind of looking at it from a uh, from a college baseball perspective. Very busy time, a very important time in uh, in amateur baseball. And of course, that means uh, for college baseball as well. And uh, a, a fun time tracking the draft. Uh, and now we uh, we're, we're going to just hit on some of the, the different aspects of it, the recruiting class aspects, the returning college player aspects of it, some effects that it had in the transfer market and, and all the rest of that. We're, uh, we're going to dive in here today on, on all things draft and college baseball. It's a, uh, well, do you want to have an overwrought debate about like when the, um, when the draft should be, that feels <laughs> we like could, a... uh, we could do that too. I mean, I dove into it. Like I, uh, like I, I tweeted about it. So like, uh, I'm, I'm ready for it if, if we want to. Yeah, like overwrought's maybe not the right way to put it because overwrought implies like a debate that's like needless or useless or doesn't have like multiple sides to it necessarily over overblown. Um, but it's just like a it is a debate that's out there. There are interesting de- debate. It's just a tough like baseball is just in a tough spot. Like that's that's kind of the end of it for me um, because well, I haven't since done the you, work since that, you brought it up. Like I, I will address this because like my perspective in the last year has changed. So a year ago was the first time the MLB draft was on all-star weekend, which meant that it got pushed to like the middle of July. And this year it's actually like a week later than last year because of the way the calendar works. So it's even later this year than ever. Um, And last year I thought like there was, there was complaining from scouts and from college coaches and from summer ball coaches and uh, a lot of people just about, the way that the calendar change affected them and it affects all of them in a unique way. Um, you know, scouts are being asked to start on next year's draft class before this year's draft finishes up. Um, you know, players are, you know, some of them are, are going to the Cape or other summer leagues to continue to play, to try and build up before the draft. And then that affects like, well, how team summer teams get billed and like, then that means like do younger players get squeezed out of certain teams and leagues and um, college coaches have less time to react to, you know, changes with the draft. And, um, you know, so if you lose a player unexpectedly, it's, it, it's harder to, uh, you know, to fill that spot and just the roster manipulation or, or the, the manipulation needed to, to massage 11.7 scholarships and to, a 35 man roster is already complicated and and this only adds another layer to it. And I heard all of that criticism and complaint and I thought, well, but like, it's on a bigger stage, right? Like maybe we let this play out for a little bit and now year two of it. And all of those same same complaints are there. 
and it just feels like the bigger stage bit has not played out at all. Like they had a really nice set in LA uh, for day one of the draft, but day one of the draft took more than five hours. And by the end of the night, it was after midnight Eastern. And according to people that were at the draft, there were no fans left at the draft. Uh, So like, what are we, what are we doing it for like that on day one? And then on day two, um, they're holding the draft at the same time as like the MLB all-star game workout slash media day, which means that the primary attention of the baseball world and the professional baseball world is on that. Like that's what MLB network was showing, not the draft. Uh, As soon as the draft ended, any pretense of caring about the draft on any, you know, major outlet like MLB.com included uh, ended and they flipped to caring about the home run derby, which is fine, whatever people care about the home run derby. Uh, And then, you know, day three happens in the immediate lead up to the all-star game. And as soon as that ends, everyone is just on to the all-star game. So I don't really see any additional interest or care level. Um, I mean, like I'm prepared to be proven wrong and somebody has ratings receipts for me, but like, I don't really think it's worth what they're, they're putting out there. Now, Rob Manfred was asked about this during his press conference as a part of all-star weekend. And he definitely made it seem like they're pretty committed to this and that he doesn't care about the, the complaints because they care about the uh, he and and the owners and major league baseball's main office care about the interest factor and the marketing factor. And like, that's something that they should be caring about, but on Tuesday morning, when I went to the homepage of MLB.com, there was no mention of the draft. I, I had to scroll and scroll and scroll before you got past all of the home run derby stuff. And like, if that's your own uh, media entity and you don't care about, and, and they don't care about the draft, like how are you going to convince anyone in the outside to care about the draft? So if that's the case, why are they doing this? Yeah, like I don't, I don't mean to be defeatist about it. Um, I think anybody who listens to our show or knows me even outside of the show, like, knows that I that I love college baseball and that I. So my my typical stance is not to be defeatist about this stuff. I tend to kind of be an optimist about it, about college baseball and its place in the landscape. And because I mean, the draft is not just a college baseball thing, but it, it impacts college baseball in a big way, and it you spend a lot of time talking and thinking about players who are coming from the college ranks. But I just, at this point, kind of just have to wonder if, um, like, there's really just not a lot baseball is going to be able to do to turn the MLB draft into any sort of really compelling made-for-TV event or three-day event. I mean, it's one thing for day one, uh, maybe if they just made it around, I don't know, instead of trying to, to, to shove the compensatory picks in there as well, like... You know, I mean, that'd be fun. It. it was two rounds was was the issue. I think last well, year they right, went yeah. thirty six picks. They doubled it this year, and that that was the wrong. Answer. Yeah, that. So I'm glad you brought that up because I actually thought that I was just crazy and like, wait a minute, like I kind of started to like pack it up and be like, okay, like as like round as pick, you know, forty one was happening or something, and I was like, wait a minute, they're going to go to sixty something here. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, I, I don't I don't like to be defeatist about it. But I, I do wonder if if this is just kind of like a sign that, you know, as let me put it this way, as college baseball has gotten more popular, 
as more and more people are paying attention to like, they're not big time stars, but I think more people are aware of players like Jackson holiday, uh, thanks to entities like BA and other media outlets. And people are very aware of, you know, the stuff that the perfect game does with, with showcases and things like that. Like people know Termar Johnson and Jackson holiday. Again, they're not household names, but among base, the baseball set, they are to a greater degree than, you know, Adrian Gonzalez was when he got drafted, you know, 20 some odd years ago. And so in light of that though, you'd think that the draft would have like made a commiserate commensurate jump in terms of how much of an entity it is. And I just don't think, I just don't think it's going to get where we want it to be. And I'm not saying give up, like that's, you know, just go back to doing it via conference call with no TV at all. Um, you know, but maybe we just kind of start to think about what's best for the logistical pieces of this, which have taken a backseat recently, the logistical pieces in terms of the players, the college programs, um, the minor league organizations, uh, there's been an emphasis put on the TV product and trying to make it more of an event. Um, I think maybe we've tried that now. Let's maybe try to work around some of these logistics that have taken a little bit of a backseat. Um, what do you think about the idea as I, as I volley it back over to you? This is not a new idea. I'm not presenting this as like a, here's an idea Joe has that nobody's ever thought of. <laughs> um, what do you think of the idea generally about making it like an Omaha centric event? So I'm generally anti Omaha. Now the point was made to me by a prominent college coach this week that they were going to do that in 2020 and it got canceled for obvious reasons. And so they just kind of skipped over that. They went from drafting at the end of super regionals to drafting straight on all-star weekend without trying Omaha. My issue with Omaha is uh, kind of many fold, but it, it basically comes down to if you start the draft on a Thursday, which is, I, I guess what I've been told is that MLB either wants it on a Sunday or a Thursday, as I recall, or Wednesday, whatever. I don't remember when it was supposed to start on. Uh, it's going to start on either a Wednesday or a Thursday. And now they've changed when Omaha starts. So like that might even affect when they could start drafting. Uh, but if it's going to be three days and you want it to, like, when are you going to do this? Super regionals end on Monday. And like, look, I complained about that a couple podcasts ago. If you, uh, <laughs> You want to hear my thoughts on that. But Super regionals end on Monday. When are you going to draft? You're going to draft on Tuesday? Like the teams in Omaha are like, they're not there yet. You're going to draft on Wednesday when they're, when they're just getting in. You're going to draft on Thursday when they're doing media day and then opening ceremonies. Um, and then Friday, the thing starts. Like when, when are you drafted here? And if the answer is drafting on Wednesday, as I think it would be, uh, because otherwise you're interfering with opening ceremonies. And I just can't imagine that anybody would be on board for that. Um, you're now asking teams to like roll into Omaha. Cause like the teams have to be in attendance at the draft. Like that's the whole like atmosphere that you're trying to grab there. So you're making them sit around for multiple hours of what is, let's face it, not an interesting event. <laughs> like if you're actually in, in the person at the draft, like, uh, I just, I don't get it. I, I don't get what they're, what they're trying to force. I don't think that anyone is any more likely to come to the draft because it's in Omaha. Um, like, I think that, you know, you'd get the, you get the players that are there. You'd get the few high school players that would go to the draft, no matter whether it's in LA, Omaha or Secaucus. 
Uh, but I just I don't think you're going to get like the dream of having all 30 first round picks in attendance. Like it's just never happening, guys. Like stop stop trying to make that a thing. Like it's th- th- there are a lot of reasons why it won't be a thing. Uh, so I'm I just think partially with this new Omaha schedule that the NCAA has rolled out there for their own purposes. I, I just don't know how you fit the draft into that. And and by the way, if it starts on Wednesday, uh, you're still going to be drafting on Friday when college world series games are happening. Like, is that what you want? Cause that doesn't seem like what you want. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with all the above, like why Omaha's is difficult. Like it's an interesting idea. And like, you know, maybe there's some aspect of like, let's give it a whirl. And I mean, and, and like, look, I, there are like, maybe you make it two days instead of three, like that's been thrown out there before. You're only drafting 20 rounds. Can you not do this in two days? But um, there are ways, but I, I just, I don't see you. You're, you're, you're really trying to finesse this event into an event that exists on its own and doesn't have any part of major league baseball or high school baseball already. So like it's this college baseball event. The draft is not just a college baseball event. Why are we trying to marry these two concepts? Yeah. And also, I mean, a not totally insignificant thing. And some of this is my, um, just my own myopic viewpoint speaking here is also that one of the things that people say about the college world series and Omaha being together is that Omaha is kind of the perfect size city to do that. Because if the city were any bigger, the college world series would get swallowed up. Like if you were trying to have it in a a city that was, you know, twice, you know, one of the top 10 markets in the, in the country, like it probably gets swallowed up. And if it were any smaller, if you tried to have it in a place like Hoover, for example, like it would probably be, you know, not they would have it in Hoover. I'm just saying hypothetically, like yeah, it's, it's too big for a, a small, it's too big for something like that. And like, I'm not saying the MLB draft is going to bring thousands upon thousands more people, but in addition to ESPN people, you're bringing in MLB network people and more production people and more agents and the high school players and the families of those high school players. And I don't know. They put on swim trials at the same time. Yeah, that's fair. That's a good point. That's, that's a good point. That, that would probably bring more people than, so maybe they could pull it. I just, you know, the, I'm just thinking of the fact that the, the, the hotel and rental car, like, <laughs> uh, uh, volume there is pretty like inelastic. I feel like, well, certainly the hotels, because rental cars, you can like bring cars in and stuff, but like the hotel availability is pretty inelastic in Omaha. And so selfishly, like that would be, but yes, you're right. I mean, they do swim trials at the same time and that's a bigger deal than, than the draft would probably be in terms of number of people. So I guess that, that is a good counterpoint there, but, um, but to your larger point, I just, I, you know, I, I think it's a good idea in theory that is probably just, um, not quite right, which is brings up the the overarching point I have about this thing is that I just think it's kind of because it lands in the calendar where it lands typically, and you it'd be tough to move it to a different time of year. Um, I just think it's going to be onerous no matter where we put it. There is no Goldilocks time for the MLB draft. Like I think that is my biggest point here. Uh, you'll have people argue for it being in the off season, like literally every other sport, uh, and I hear that. And, but then I wonder, okay, so how are you going to draft high school players? Uh, if you have this draft in the off season, how are you going to draft like players with current college eligibility? Like how, how are you going to do that? And the, the solution, I guess, is to make players declare for the draft, but does baseball want to do that? Cause there's a reason why they've never done that before. So like you, 
you're trading off, you're trading that if you're, if you're asking for it to be later. Part of, the other part of the reason it's the MLB likes this being later is because they really are trying to make the combine a thing. And it seems like teams themselves don't value the combine data at the level that other people are valuing it uh, right now. And maybe that'll change as the combine becomes bigger and they get more reps at it and it becomes more of a thing that like every player is doing rather than just some players are doing. Um, so that, that having it in July versus June does allow for a combine, but like at what level is the combine necessary in baseball? Um, like my personal idea is to have this thing on Memorial day, make Memorial day, a celebration of amateur baseball. Um, you, start with the selection show at noon you have the draft at night um you know you finish the draft tuesday wednesday no one's games are affected you could also it was suggested to me uh have the draft start on sunday night leading into the selection show so like the sec championship game ends and like all of a sudden the draft starts and then you know you after the selection show ends the draft starts on restarts on monday and they finish on tuesday I mean, there are plenty of ways to make that Memorial Day a celebration of amateur baseball. Like, I, I think that has legs, but like to do that, you give up the combine. And, you know, so there, there's a lot, there's no perfect time for this. There's a lot of give and take that has to happen. And so for now, it's in July. And I can tell you this, this being a college baseball podcast that uh, I don't know that anyone in college baseball is happy with uh, a, a draft that wraps on July 19th. All right, so having uh, moving into something that we didn't really intend to dive into, let's uh, let's get into the picks themselves, Joe. Um, the first round, uh, from a college perspective, was not well. I guess from any perspective, was not terribly surprising. From a college perspective, maybe the most surprising thing was when we had our preview episode. We talked about how you're going to have to wait a really long time to hear any pitchers taken, college or otherwise. And uh, there was there was Cade Horton going in the top ten picks. I mean, that was. Uh, I, that was incredible. And that that's another thing that the later draft allows for. And I don't think this is a good or a bad thing necessarily. It's, it's a thing that because the draft was later, Cade Horton was able to use the entire postseason to, uh, you know, show what kind of pitcher he was when he's healthy and he pitched his way all the way into the top 10 picks. Yeah, that is a, we, we really didn't, as much as we talked about Cade Horton in that situation on the previous episode, like, yeah, we, we didn't really touch on the counterfactual of, what if the draft was back when it used to be and like he had started to come on a little bit. He pitched at the big 12 tournament and the championship game and threw the ball pretty well. And uh, you know, he'd come on a little bit before that, but certainly wasn't the guy that he was. And you know, he's very well back at Oklahoma if it weren't for the fact that the draft is as late as it is now. Um, and so that, that is kind of a fascinating little counterfactual there, but you know, yeah, with the two guys in the top 10 with Horton and, and Gabe Hughes, like we talked about, um, it'll be interesting to see how teams react to this pitching climate that's been much talked about. And, and the fact that a guy like Cade Horton that had late helium, as they say, um, could get, I don't want to say reached for, cause it's clear that he's shown at his best. He is worthy of, of the place where he was drafted at seven overall, but you know, they were going to have to reach up and grab him or 
Maybe it's the pitchers that were just simply healthy. And that's not to take anything away from Gabriel Hughes, who has very good stuff and has, you know, it was a, a good performer at Gonzaga, all of that. But, you know, in a fully healthy pitching year, like Gabriel Hughes, probably not the 10th overall pick. And so would it be the guys who were simply had a lot of track record and were healthy this year? Did those guys end up running up the boards a little bit? And the answer was we had a little of both. Obviously, we had Horton get plucked and then we had Hughes, a guy who really was able to the combination of the situation with the pitching and also with his own really, really good season for Gonzaga was able to find his way into the top 10. So it wasn't really one overarching you know, narrative, right? Like we didn't see Thomas Harrington get drafted in the first round, for example, or in the top 15 picks or what have you. And he was another guy who felt like he had a little bit of helium because he was, you know, healthy and, and pitched well in a year when we, there wasn't a lot of health and, and track record. And so it was rather than one overarching kind of thing that teams were unified around dealing with the pitching situation. It feels like we saw a little bit of, a little bit of everything in, in terms of how they approached it. Which I mean, often ends up being the case, right? There's no one way, there's many ways. Um, I also found it interesting that uh, I stupidly clearly said on the, the preview show that uh, the first college player taken was, it, it seemed like it, the consensus had moved to Brooks Lee. He was the third college player taken. The first was Jacob Berry, who went just one pick uh, in front of Cade Horton. Um, not that Brooks Lee slid particularly, he went eighth. Um, and uh, Jacob Berry went six to the Marlins with, uh, you know, Sandwich and Horton. But uh, after, you know, so four of the first five picks were high schoolers. Kamar Rocker, the, the, the one different, uh, the one non-high schooler in that group. Um, and then there was a huge run on college players. And the whole draft was very college heavy. Um, that's not surprising. That's a trend that's been been moving towards that and the contraction of the minor leagues really only is accelerating it as I guess a college baseball gets better at developing talent uh, and then b fewer minor league teams means less space for the developmental high school player either you're elite and they are willing to pay to to get you into the system as, as soon as possible or they're willing or kind of forced to by the way the minor leagues are now set up, uh, let the the high school players go to college. Yeah, I mean, I think you framed that exactly right. It's that college programs are better than ever at developing players and you know putting out a better player after year three than after than, than after their high school days were over. And you know, it obviously, it takes some risk off the table, right? Um, you, you have a a better idea of what a player is. Um, and so I think I think those two things obviously play. Um, play a big role there in, 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 in seeing that movement. And, and, you know, the contraction of the minor leagues is also, it's, I feel like as time goes on, we kind of see the results of that decision kind of take different shape as time goes on. And, and one of which I think you hit on there, which is that, I don't know about you, but, and I, obviously I don't pay attention to what's going on in the actual machinations of minor league baseball, the way I do in college baseball, but especially being at BA very aware of it happening because there's so much chatter about it, but it's, you know, players are really moving in these systems. Now you just see a lot less. And some of it is because yes, to your point, you're no longer, you're, you're less inclined to take the real project, um, you know, in, in the draft, the real raw high school pitcher. Um, you're seeing less of that generally. Um, and I think part of that upshot is that, 
you, the guys that are in the minor league system, like for them increasingly, not totally, but increasingly the guys in the minor league system are guys that these organizations think might have a big league future. And so they're really not messing around with like, um, you're just seeing less toiling, you know, in, in low a and in high a and taking several years to get up to double a, like these players are moving in these systems. And I, that's, I think it's another, just, just another result of that decision being made. And, um, I think, again, as college players, you put them in these systems and like a lot of times, you know, pretty quickly, whether this guy, okay, what kind of future this guy has pretty quickly. And if, if his future is a big league future, like there's no really real, no real reason to have him just kind of hanging around. Like if, if, if they, if they can cut it, they're, they're moving in these systems. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, you just, there are a lot of, a lot of good players out there and they're, they're not messing around. Like you said, they're, they're finding them, they're getting them into the systems and then they are, uh, they're, they're trying to move them up. Um, I guess at the end of the, of the, the, the draft, um, you know, we, we did see, so the, the way the draft is set up these days, if you're a player and you get drafted in the top 10 rounds, you are almost invariably signing uh, every year. There's, a couple that slipped through the cracks, you know, Kamar Rocker had his situation last year and there were a couple other players in, in the top 10 rounds that didn't sign. But basically if a player got drafted in the top 10 rounds, they sign like that. That is the way that this thing has to work now. Um, so if you're trying to evaluate, did a player who's taken in the eighth round, like, are they, are they going? Yes, they're going. Um, the same can't be said for day three uh, with college players. It's still highly likely that they sign. That's what last year indicated anyway. And college, or a high school players are more of a coin flip. But as the draft continues, you see the players are sliding. And from a college perspective, it starts becoming very interesting about like, okay, like, are they going to, to make it to school? And Joe, I, some of the more interesting uh, players for, in, in, or one of the most interesting players in that group this year was Miami closer, Andrew Walters, who we had ranked like 120 or something on the BA 500, which means he's a, should be drafted in the fourth or fifth round generally. And he just kept staying on the board and kept staying on the board, and kept staying on the board. And finally the Orioles took him in the 18th round. Uh, but given all of that, g- given where he was ranked, given how long he stayed undrafted, given that his younger brother is joining Miami uh, this coming season as a junior college transfer, uh, and that Walters just this year watched Carson Palmquist convert from being Miami's closer to being their ace and go in the third round of the draft. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to believe that Andrew Walters is looking at all of that and seeing like, maybe coming back is the right choice for me. Yeah. I mean, and certainly if, if it takes, you know, Palmquist, I would say his conversion to starter went, well, I'm not going to argue that it didn't go well. Um, but his stuff is above and beyond where Palmquist is Walter's stuff is. And so you look at what Palmquist did where he proved that, yeah, he could start like, was it perfect? No, he was, you know, mostly five or six inning guy, but he was very, very good. And, Walter's stuff is better than his. So if it even takes to the degree that Palmquist did, I mean, your Walters is looking at being a guy who 
you know, could go in the first couple of rounds. And if it really takes like, he, you know, he's got the stuff to be a first round pick. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And he've also, by the way, hit on, and, and, and that's a, a, I think a foundational piece for Miami. I mean, I think we will talk about maybe some other teams that are in this kind of position, but um, you know, we, we're just kind of now we're, we're so used to these rosters being so old these last few years that we are just kind of now we we've dealt with it a little last off season. I, we will deal with it to a greater degree this off season. Um, you know, we are just kind of now reacclimating to the idea of like how often the good teams of which Miami obviously was one just have to kind of re restart a lot of their team every year or most years. And the exception to the rule is when they bring back a lot of guys, you know, and you kind of have certainty about it. Um, you know, what Tennessee has in its rotation is the exception to the rule, obviously. Um, so starting with a guy like Walters, even if, even if the conversion just kind of goes okay, like just having him as a certainty, whether it's as a starter or he has to go back to the bullpen, whatever is just like a really nice building block for that team. And I think the Walters situation to go back to our bigger discussion like also is another way in which the MLB draft is not exactly like the most user-friendly experience. Like the first round is pretty straightforward, right? Um, very rarely we get, do we get wrinkles there. You do occasionally get a Matt McLean, right. That, that does decides not to sign as a first round pick, but for the most part, like that's pretty cut and dry, but there's just like these games that get played. And I understand why, but you know, oftentimes players taken in the 11th round are actually better than the ones that got taken in the eighth through 10th round. And players in the 17th through 20th round, especially if they're really good players, are probably guys the teams are hoping to like to sway into signing, but they know it's a long shot. Or if, hey, our negotiations with our second round pick really break down, we can throw some money at this 18th round guy and maybe talk him into signing. Like, (laughs) I get that just that's going to always be fundamentally different about the baseball draft because there are 20 rounds. But, But it is a way in which like, 20 rounds and no one declares if, if right. people declared this would be different. Right. And you and I know the, the, the rhythms of it. Right. So you and I know once it gets past a certain point, like once he wasn't drafted in the first 10 rounds, if Walters goes in the 11th round, that is telling us a different story than if he goes when he goes, but like to a layman, like you may not have that information. <laughs> and so like that, you know, again, a minor thing, because uh, let's be honest, it's only like the sickos and the hardcores, like really watching day three of the MLB draft. But uh, for a layman, like that's a piece of information that you really don't have that just because Teddy and I have been doing this a while, like we understand the rhythms of the MLB draft, but, but it, it, it is far from user-friendly. That's for sure. Yeah. And um, I mean, as far as a TV product, that is something that you would look at and, wonder about cleaning up there are a whole lot of reasons why it isn't but whatever um i think that you know so i i wrote winners and losers from a college baseball perspective and getting walters back kind of makes miami a winner assuming that that is how this goes down and that he doesn't surprisingly sign uh but you look at the rest of what miami did during the draft or what that what happened to them during the draft and it's all pretty positive jacob burke did go um on day three earlier in a round where you would figure he would sign. And that was a little, uh, you know, just given that he'd made it through day two, you thought like, okay, like maybe he's going to come back and he wasn't ranked on the 500. Like he was kind of borderline, uh, but that did happen. So he'll, he'll go Jake Garland went in either the 16th or the 17th round. And that's kind of an awkward spot, but I would assume that he'll, he'll sign as well. So like those two losses aren't 
optimal for Miami, but they had the third ranked recruiting class on signing day. And with the exception of losing Elijah Green and Nazir Muay, uh, who they were always going to lose, those were top 100 players, um, the rest of their class made it through the draft. So I, I feel pretty good about Miami being a winner here, um, and, and especially so with uh, with Walt, who's coming back. It's um, you know being able to put him on the pitching staff in whatever role, having Carson Ligon coming back and and uh rosario i mean like you're you have some really nice pieces to build around there for for miami um you know to go with uh you know some some good pieces uh in the lineup most notably johanny morales but also don patelli and uh CJ they've Kapis. got yeah cj capas for sure they've got they've got some real star pieces and so i i don't know if miami's going to be a top eight seed again like they were last year but uh, it certainly is. They have a lot of building blocks that you have to like. Uh, all right. So another player in a similar position was Quinn Matthews. And Quinn Matthews was not actually an All-American, though uh, Joe and I very heavily debated uh, his place on the team. He did not make it. The Stanford left-hander did not make it. But Stanford doesn't go to Omaha without Quinn Matthews on that team. And he also lasted far longer in the draft than you would expect to. The Rays finally took him. And, you know, I, it was in the 17th round, uh, I believe. And it was just another spot where you look at it and it was in the 19th round, actually. And it, it just seems like he's probably coming back to school. And if he does, um, that would be massive for Stanford. Uh, they've lost Alex Williams, uh, their ace. They have some younger pitchers, but if they can put Matthews back on that staff in whatever role, whether that's Friday starter or a similar hybrid role that he pitched in this year, I mean, that would be a real anchor, a real veteran anchor to the pitching staff that that would just be, I mean, we already have them pegged as the uh, Pac-12 favorite with the assumption that Quinn Matthews was going. Uh, having him back would be, would be a, such a huge deal for that team though. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it, I'm rolling out conference like season interviews for for conferences and what have you. So check those out on the site. But I, I did the Pac-12 last week. And at the end of them, I'm doing like just three kind of very broad general questions just to kind of get your brain thinking a little about what kind of their certain teams are facing going into sure, the offseason. Summer, I don't need my brain thinking. Nah, fair enough. Hey, I'm, I'm here for that. <laughs> um, going to the lake in a couple weekends. My brain will not be thinking that weekend. Um, regardless. Um, and now my brain is not thinking because I just kind of um, Quinn Matthews. Yeah. I mean, like one of the questions I asked was that with, with, was with Stanford. Okay. They did it last year when they lost Brennan back. It was like, okay, well, who's their Friday guy. Okay. It's Alex Williams comes forward and okay. He's just about as good as Brennan Beck was. And so now you have that question again. And like, there are other potential answers, right? Is, is Ryan Bruno ready to be a starter, you know, and, and be that guy? Is it drew Dowd? Um, but if it's Quinn Matthews, like you feel pretty good about that, especially if Dowd and or Bruno is also ready to be in the rotation and be a little steadier. I know Dowd was there this year and like had his struggles, had his ups and downs. But, you know, just being able to slot Matthews back in the front, even if he's not the most electric guy on the staff. Right. I mean, just having a steady guy like that would be would be huge um, for Stanford. And there are Stanford presents like an interesting we talked about it on a previous episode. It is an interesting little thing with them because 
it is Stanford academically. And so it does put a little bit of a wrinkle in it. If like, if Matthews already has his degree, not only would that be like, okay, well, I already have the Stanford degree. So, you but know, this is just year three for quit or was just year three. So he would fair enough to, to get through Stanford in less than four years. Yeah, that I feel would, like, that would, would be, really be impressive. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He's probably going pro in something other than sports if he's getting through Stanford in uh, three years, but um, yes. So, but yeah, just, just having, again, it's a little like Walter is a different deal, but you can just throw Quinn Matthews, the front of the rotation. It, it provides some cover for some of those younger pitchers to figure it out a little more slowly, not be thrust into a position. It's not too different than what Alex Williams is doing, right? I mean, Alex Williams was a guy who'd been on the roster for a few years, had had his moments, had never been the guy. So the question, the questions you had were less about, is he going to give us something? Is he going to be steady? It was more just about, can he be as good as a Friday guy would, we would like a Friday guy to be. And the answer was yes. And with Matthews, it's a similar situation. And, you know, if he doesn't quite stack up, like that's probably okay. Stanford does have other options, but man, you talk about a luxury to have him back and and just be able to like kind of set it and forget it with him and just let him go is like uh, just a kind of a dream situation for Dave Esker. Stanford also did not lose a single player from their recruiting class. Uh, so they'll have a top 25 recruiting class this fall for the third time in four years. Um, a lot to like, uh, a lot of good feelings uh, coming out there uh, at Stanford over the last week and uh, getting Quinn Matthews uh, back would, would be the biggest bit of that. Um, they did lose Adam Crampton in the top 10 rounds. That was a question for me, whether he would go, uh, the Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year does ultimately get picked in the top 10 rounds. So uh, definitely a loss there, but not a wholly unexpected one if uh, if you're Stanford. Uh, all right, so we're going to uh, run through a few other storylines here uh, in a minute. But first, check this out. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, we got uh, we got some more storylines to run through here, Joe. So let's uh, let's keep this rolling. If uh, coming into the draft, we we had asked who or which college was most likely to have the most players selected. I'm sure that most people would have landed on Tennessee. That certainly would have been the the expectation. 
Uh, Tennessee had a lot of players drafted, but actually Oklahoma. Oklahoma came away with the most players drafted at 11. Um, That was a bit surprising, a bit not surprising if you really look at the makeup of Oklahoma's roster, which was incredibly old last year. And then, you know, Kate Horton coming on to to get picked uh, helped that along as well. But pretty much anyone on Oklahoma's roster, if they, uh, if they could get drafted, if they were, if they're going to get drafted, they did. Kendall Pettis is maybe the one returner uh, that was, that was eligible that you would have thought, well, maybe he could go, uh, that didn't. Uh, Basically though, Oklahoma is going to have to, uh, it's going to be an incredibly different looking roster at Oklahoma next year. And uh, Kate Horton pitching his way out of Norman is uh, we, we knew that was a bad, you know, a, a potential bad outcome. Uh, in terms of the 2023 Sooners chances uh, and that came to pass, but also just the exodus of talent is, uh, is not insignificant. Yeah. And it, you know, obviously it, we, we talk about from time to time, we talk about teams hitting their window, right. And sometimes you'll have a core of players where, you know, you have a window of a couple of years to maximize that. And, and, you know, um, ha, you know, ha, some of these players would have probably come back had Oklahoma, not done what they done because they wouldn't have, prefer- you know, Kate Horton's one of them, right? Where had they not had that postseason run, they wouldn't have raised their profile to the point where they get drafted. So yada, yada, yada. But point being is that, you know, Oklahoma really, this felt like a, a real window for them. And they obviously, you know, two wins short of a national title, there's disappointment in that, but generally speaking, they did maximize the window they had. And, and your point is, is well taken where it's just an older team and, some of the guys they had also, you know, with a pitcher like Javier Ramos, right? It's like just a high-end arm. Like David Sandlin is another guy, like had ups and downs, but it's a high-end arm. And those guys tend to be the types of guys that get flyers taken on them late, right? Um, guys that MLB organizations say, well, the raw materials are really good. How can we maybe, you know, shape and craft this guy a little bit more to, to turn him into the best version of himself. Those guys tend to get flyers taken on them versus the, the, on the position player side. So the fact that Oklahoma had a couple of those guys too made them, made them ripe for something like this. Not only did Oklahoma, Oklahoma have a lot of depth of talent taken, but they also had a lot of high end talent. And Horton went seventh overall. We've already detailed that. Um, but Payne Graham and Jake Bennett both went in the thirties, I believe it was. And um, you know, Payne Graham, not uh, he was a first team all American, but Jake Bennett, like, I feel like he kind of got overshadowed a lot of times because Graham was there and like, Oh, Jake Bennett, he's just like this veteran lefty at the front of the rotation. And then Horton was like this huge shooting star, but Jake Bennett, really good pitcher. And uh, uh, so a good, good for Jake Bennett for, uh, for, for rising up boards the way he did. Yeah, no, it's a good call. Like him going before Graham, I think you tweeted about it, like kind of just was like, not something I would have, would have expected. And I, I had kind of, Early in the year, I thought he was a very solid but not great Friday night guy, right? Like, I thought he's going to give them a lot of innings, and, like, he did that. Like, he he was one of the pitchers in college baseball you could really almost bank on, you know, something like seven innings. Um, but, you know, he was – he was. I thought, he, you know, he'll give them innings and he'll give, he'll give them some quality, but, um, you know, it might be kind of a coin flip whether or not he's going to be better than the other guy that, that the opposition throws on Friday. And he just turned out to be better than that. And it felt like he had some big moments late uh, for them. Some of, some of his best work got saved for, for last, which you could also say about Trevin Michael, right? I mean, there was an incredible, he was just having, Trevin Michael was having a really nice year, uh, but went from a really nice year to 
one of the best closers in college baseball with the, the way he pitched in the, in the postseason. So, but yeah, with Bennett, I, I underestimated him for a long time. And then, you know, I, by the time I saw him kind of at the big 12 tournament, I had a little bit of an epiphany of like, Oh, his, it's not that just the performance, like his stuff is also better than I thought it was. And so, um, yeah, I, again, you know, he's also kind of a, the type of guy that, you know, in, in a year when the pitching is what it is in the college game, like he's a guy who rises, a guy who really performed. And, and obviously the stuff is, is more than good enough. Absolutely. So they're resetting. Tennessee is, I mean, resetting to an extent just because they had so many players drafted, but that's also a team that still has uh, an incredible wealth starting with their, uh, their rotation. Um, because it's the off season uh, in uh, the, the July, 2022, uh, something went very right for LSU this week. <laughs> that's just, that's just the way the off season this year is going. Uh, LSU did have the most players, the most recruits drafted. They had eight players committed to them get picked. And several of those players will not be coming to Baton Rouge now, like Justin Crawford and Robbie Snelling and Mike Romero, who are first round picks. Uh, but uh, because LSU had the most BA 500 players committed to them to begin with, just losing five guys is uh or six guys is, is the expectation. They had six drafted in the top 10 rounds. Uh, they will still end up most likely with the most BA 500 players uh, on campus. That'll probably mean they have the number one recruiting class. Uh, and for good measure, they did pretty well with their eligible players from the 2022 roster. Uh, Ty Floyd went undrafted. Um, you know, we'll see what he ends up being, but that's a, uh, a really intriguing arm for them to, to add to the pitching staff. Uh, Braden Jobert, who hit 18 home runs, went undrafted. Uh, so that's another big bat to have back in the lineup. And Cade Beloso, not completely unsurprisingly, but he went unpicked. Uh, and Beloso, uh, you know, he, I think he had like three at-bats this year. He was injured. But again, another another big bat for them to, to throw in that lineup potentially. So uh, a lot of things uh, went went very right for LSU, and and like I said, that that's that's just the way this off season is going. Yeah, they were LSU was was bound to be a team that had a lot of guys, whether it's players in the roster or recruits drafted, because that's just like how how talent laden they are right now. Um, whether guys who haven't made it to campus yet or the guys who are currently on campus, so if you just look at the raw numbers, you might look at it and kind of go like, Ooh, they got, they got hammered, but like, that's not to look at the big picture here. They were always going to have incoming transfers get drafted. They were always going to have incoming recruits get drafted. They were always going to have guys on the roster get drafted. Um, so you, you really have to kind of dig a little deeper to find out that, that actually they're, they're bringing more BA 500 guys to campus than, than any, really any other program. And, They've got transfers who, you know, might have been drafted higher had they not been committed to LSU or um, that just are the type of player who typically doesn't transfer, but is going to LSU to be at LSU. Like it's just, they were always going to have some attrition and they end up a winner because they came out of that with only an expected level of attrition, as opposed to a extraordinary amount of attrition, I guess I would, I would say if we can thread the needle there. Yeah, I would say the worst thing that happened to LSU, and, I mean, losing their top five commits uh, is not great. I, I guess that, <laughs> that that's a good starting point, um, including three first round picks. Um, but Dylan Tabrock, uh, their transfer from Creighton, uh, 
did get drafted in the the top 10 rounds. And I know a lot of people have been looking about at him and thinking that he would step into the LSU rotation right away. And that obviously will not be happening now, but um, you offset that with some of the recruits that are getting to campus. And uh, I think, uh, I think he'll take it. Yeah. I think to Brock is the one that, that hurts. I mean, Jack Pineda is a nice player from Baylor, uh, steady middle infielder. Like that would have been nice to have. Um, but you have Carter Young, who committed after him and was drafted in the 17th round, and we'll see. But, you know. Correct. And that was, you know, having both of those guys committed. I mean, one, Jay Johnson's just always going to collect as many talented players as he can. But also, that was not an accident that they were recruited together. And with the idea that, like, chances are one of these guys. is the, If Vegas had put odds on it, the, the number on guys drafted there would have been one. Um, so that the one actually slots in. but. Um, and it, I think most people looked at it as Pineda. Um, so it kind of played out exactly what they would have, how they would have thought there, but to Brock is the one that probably hurts a little more just because he's, he's such a, he, first of all, his, his profile was such that there was a scenario where he doesn't get popped. I mean, the numbers are what they are, but the, the stuff is good, not great. Um, you know, could he, could he just decide, Hey, I want to crack it playing in Omaha um, that would have been a totally reasonable well, I mean, and played for like four years in Omaha, Joe. That's, that's a great point. <laughs> that's so funny. He's played plenty of games in Charles Schwab field. Um, and TD yeah. Ameritrade field for that matter. He did both. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. He saw it on before and after the name change, but uh, it's a great point. That's so funny. You know, maybe he wants to, a chance to play in the college world series. And so he ends up at LSU. Like that was a perfectly reasonable outcome there and it just it just didn't happen so that's and he would have been a guy who probably would have been in pole position to be in the rotation um he checks a lot of boxes there so that that's the one that probably hurts among the 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 guys because there there was a scenario where you could really see him deciding to you know pass on what i assume is moderate money to to go to lsu and, and do one more season there and probably have another opportunity to pitch in pro ball after 2023 like that opportunity was not going away for a guy with his track record um, so yeah, the, the Tigers come out of this looking very good. The going into, uh, the draft, if you looked at the top recruiting classes in the country, LSU and Vanderbilt had completely separated themselves from the pack. They were in a tier of their own one and two. We had it on signing day ranked Vanderbilt one LSU two. If I had re-ranked in June, I don't know if I would have landed on LSU one Vanderbilt two, whatever. It really doesn't matter. Those two were completely uh, on a different tier than everyone else. And while I just praised LSU for how well it turned out for them, despite losing their top five commits and three first round picks, Vanderbilt things didn't work out quite as well. Um, they had one less player drafted. They had seven players drafted from their recruiting class. Um, but everyone that was drafted is expected to be signed. Six of them went in the top 10 rounds uh, the one that didn't, Ryan Clifford, went in the 11th and pretty quickly like made it known that he had he was intending to sign as players in the 11th round typically do. Um, so Vanderbilt loses the top seven recruits off of its class or seven of the best recruits from its class because they did get two players uh, that pulled their names out of the draft formally in RJ Austin and Andrew Dukanich. Um along with Chris Maldonado and Devin Kotelai, who were BA 500 players who, who were not picked. Those are still the nucleus of a really good recruiting class, but it's no longer like number one in the country kind of good recruiting class. So 
Vanderbilt did take it on the chin a little bit in terms of their their incredible class is no longer held together. That no surprise they had players like Drew Jones and Dylan Lesko. Like you do that, you're not going to end up with uh, with with the group as as a whole. Um, but that's where Vanderbilt's at. They they offset that with the fact that a lot of pitchers um, are coming back, like Nick Maldonado and Thomas Schultz, and Grayson Moore, all went unpicked. Um, so they, they do have that going for them, but I, a little disappointing that their, their recruiting class, which looked so incredible a week ago, uh, that they weren't able to, to hold it together a little better than, uh, than they did. Yeah. I mean, this is just kind of the game that Vanderbilt plays, right? I mean, you, you recruit the types of players they recruit and sometimes you get burned with it a little bit. And, you know, maybe this is a year where, you know, they got, their class was, was a standard deviation one standard deviation hit harder than it normally is. They, they came out of it one standard deviation worse off for wear, put it that way. But I think that the fact that they are a, a, a loser in this very binary exercise that, you know, we just, you just kind of have to do um, kind of, I think goes to like a larger point that you and I talked about offline, which is that things went mostly to form in this draft to the point where there are very few obvious winners or losers that were not totally unexpected. Right. So like Oklahoma comes off as a loser. Cause well, I have 11 players drafted most or all of which we're expecting to be gone. Like that makes them a loser, but also like, that's kind of the expected outcome. Um, again, maybe a little worse off than we thought they would be, but we kind of expected more or less this, you know, um, and I can even spin that as being mildly positive. Like that's something that skip Johnson can recruit to now. Like we had the most right. players drafted, like, Will right. help you get better. But there just weren't any this year. There weren't any examples of a team that when we have had examples of this in the past where they had several guys not get drafted at all that we expected to get drafted or on the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, guys had money thrown at them that we didn't expect money to get thrown at them in their recruiting class and the recruiting class just got picked apart. There really wasn't a whole lot of that this year, it feels like. And so that's how, you know, a team like Vanderbilt where it's like, yeah, okay, this is just kind of the game Vanderbilt plays. But relative to a lot of the rest of what happened here, it does end up making them, putting them on the the negative end of, of this ledger that we have, like I said, this, this binary exercise that we do. Yeah, I didn't think anyone got outright crushed. Like Alabama's recruiting class got hit very hard. They had five players drafted. That's uh, the only the only teams that had more are Vanderbilt and LSU. Um, so that doesn't look great. Three of them were drafted in the top 10 rounds. So you expect them all to sign one of the ones that, was 11 through 20 as a junior college player. Those guys are signed at a higher rate than high school players. Um, the, the last of them I would kind of expect to show up in Tuscaloosa. Um, so like, that's really tough for Alabama, but also they had a whole bunch of like fringy, like, are they going to get drafted? Are they not going to get drafted guys off of their 2022 roster? And for the most part, those guys did not. Garrett McMillan, their ace being one that, did but he got drafted so late that it's entirely plausible that he comes back so like yeah Alabama's recruiting class got hit pretty hard um Brad Bohannon knows how to recruit no breaking news there but um I feel pretty good about what they have in terms of the actual roster coming back so I hard to say that that's a loser you know Texas uh had four recruits drafted well I mean it was a really good recruiting class like these things happen um so, yeah, I, I just didn't think there was anyone that got outright crushed this year. I, you know, 
maybe maybe a coach that I haven't mentioned feels differently as they're looking at their uh, at, at what they have coming out of this 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 group. But there were so many examples where it's like, well, yeah, like that 50-50 thing split the wrong way, but here's this 50-50 thing that split the right way for you. So like, it's hard to say that you had a bad draft. You just had a draft. This is just kind of what happens in the event. Um, Ole Miss, I think, is a perfect example of that. They lost their top two recruits, had two other recruits drafted, um, just lost Nick Pogue, uh, who was supposed to transfer as an undrafted free agent. Uh, but also have Peyton Chatnier and, and TJ McCants go unpicked. And, you know, if they get those guys back, I mean, like, like you take that. So um, a, a lot of that going around this year, I felt like. Um, I, I guess mentioning Pogue, we've mentioned a couple other examples. Transfers, Joe, that was something that we talked about on the last episode. How are these guys going to evaluate their opportunities to, to play at their new club? or to, to sign a, a, a contract if, if they get drafted. And a lot of those guys ended up getting picked. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was a rough, rough day as far as, I mean, a great day for the players. Like, obviously, that this is a dream come true. But just in terms of holding these, these transfers um, in, like, it was, it was just a tough day, especially in the SEC. Like, I'm going to read off the names to you, and it is extremely SEC heavy. But... Um, this is kind of a thing that I think still, just before I get to the specifics of it, this is kind of a thing that I think is going to take shape over the coming years. Like, let's not forget that this is really the first full cycle we've had with these, uh, for lack of a better way, putting it free one-time transfers, uh, this time last year that existed, but it was approved during the baseball season. So we didn't have a full year to kind of players did not have a full year to evaluate that coaches didn't have a full year to evaluate that. So Anyway, we're still kind of feeling this out, right? And one thing that is interesting is the draft eligible player who goes into the portal kind of as a a backup option. And, you know, but then there's like, even within that, there is, do you bother committing somewhere? Or on the, on the flip side of it, does the school bother committing you before you know how the draft is going to play out? Now, if you're the school, you kind of have to, right? Especially if you're, if you're trying to recruit Dylan to Brock, like you can't just wait around like <laughs> and like say, ah, well, you know, we might be. I guess if the player wants to, like Alex Williams never committed it. Right. Exactly. We know of. So that is this whole thing that we're talking about here is going to be kind of a fascinating thing to see play out is that do we see more players just kind of do it as a because as many players as did this, there are a lot of guys who got drafted in the 15th round or 17th round that are probably going to sign who maybe had eligibility left that didn't do this. So like, do we see more players do this just to, just to kind of see what's out there? Um, you know, do we see fewer of them commit because the coaches get a little gun shy on this stuff? Like probably not like, but anyway, I don't want to get too bogged down in the weeds there. I just find that kind of an interesting dynamic of the situation. I, I do think quickly, I, I think it's very interesting. And I think that, you know, some coaches clearly evaluated it differently. Um, you know, some of them were kind of shying away from, uh, from, from guys that had draft eligibility that they figured would sign. Um, some of them went all in on that. Uh, and, you know, obviously Reggie Crawford is kind of an extreme example in that he was a first round pick. Ultimately, he was the last pick of the first round uh, who was transferring. And, you know, that kind of talent means that, 
everyone wants him, but you also have to understand that like, that means pro teams want him too. And so I, I found him to be a, a fascinating case, even more than a guy like uh, a Jordan Sprinkle or, or, or something. There were several of them running around, but, uh, and, and then seeing Crawford end up getting uh, a, a first round, you know, a, a, a big league team, the Giants using a first round pick on Crawford was uh, kind of an interesting thing as well that they're just evaluating. He, he was so, and we talked about this last week, that he was so, fascinating because of the upside that he presented both to Tennessee and, and two major league organizations. Yeah. And, and ultimately, you know, he will, he went on the high end of where we expected. So like uh, that the uh, Tennessee will always have those photos of him in the, in the locker room, I guess. Um, but, you know, we, we talk about the same way about elite recruits, right? Like there is some value in like, Hey, Tennessee convinced Reggie Crawford to go play there. Right. So there is some value in that, even if that doesn't end up playing. I, out that is way. true. Like what I said, in April or whatever it was that Tamar Johnson committed to Arizona state about how that was a great endorsement of uh, the program and of Willie Bloomquist, like in the same way you could try and sell it as like, Hey, like we can Reggie Crawford, a first round pick thought that this would be the best place for him to, to play his next year or two of college baseball. Like that's something that you can turn around and, and sell. And Tennessee doesn't need that right now. But uh, some other places might, you know, in the way yeah. that I felt like Arizona State did when they got Tamar. Yeah, Tennessee, not not a, not a program right now that, that um, probably needs a lot of help. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they got to kind of figure it out in a lot of ways. Um, okay, so yeah, fully 13 of the top 50 transfers, which put out a top 50 transfers list a couple weeks ago. Um, but 13 of the top 50 fully got drafted or signed as an undrafted free agent. Nick Pogue, as, as Teddy mentioned, is the, the undrafted guy. He was going from Florida to Ole Miss. So 12 got drafted, 13 if you count Nick Pogue that are kind of in this mix. Um, Reggie Crawford, who was going to Tennessee. Dylan Tabrock, we talked about him going to LSU. Uh, Colby Thomas going to Florida, got drafted in the third round. Jordan Sprinkle was going to Arkansas, fourth round. Jonathan Brand, Miami, Ohio to Auburn. Uh, Jack Pineda to LSU, Bill Knight to Mississippi State, Chad Castillo to Oklahoma State, Carter Young to LSU, Kyle Nevin to Oklahoma, Julian Bosnick to Arkansas from South Carolina, by the way, Cade Winquest going to Oregon, um, and then Matt Keating, who's going from USC to North Carolina, did not get, um, well, he got he was not in the top 50, but he did get drafted in the top 10 rounds, so he actually was not in the top 50, would have been in the top 100 when I expand that list, but, but he got popped in. If there is someone else there that was not on the top 50 that got popped, I have not done the full account. I don't think so. There might have been, but that's the the crux of it there is that 13 of the top 50 transfers were drafted or were signed as an undrafted free agent. And we talked about this offline. Like most of these guys are going like Carter Young is the one that's interesting. We'll see on that because his certainly his talent is his talent. And if he puts it all together is greater than a 17th round pick um, coming off a tough year, though. We will see on that, but for the most part, these these guys are going. Like, there's he also some... got picked by the Orioles, and I just honestly don't know how much money they're going to have to spend because uh, yeah. they are presumably using almost full slot to sign Jackson Holiday. I think. Yeah, so that'll be. I mean, there, there's some. You know, LSU had a, a couple of guys. Arkansas had a couple of guys here. So, I mean, there there are some um, some guys that coaches were dreaming on that, that didn't make it. And they, they knew this was a risk, but I do think there probably are some guys here who um, when they committed them, weren't really necessarily thinking this was an eventuality and yet, and yet here they are. So um, 
Anyway, I'm I'm going to have to do more editing of the of the transfers list than I than I thought I was going to do. I will admit. Yeah, I um, you know some of those guys like when Jordan Sprinkle went in the portal, I was like, I mean, come on, like, are who are we kidding here? But when Colby Thomas went in, like, I don't think I thought third round pick. You know, he was ranked close to the top 100, but outside the top 100 on uh, on the 500 ultimately. So that's close to where he went. But that was not a player that. You know, I, I knew it would be, it, it might be a, a a bit of a a risk for Florida, but I didn't think it was a clear cut, like he's gone the way that, you know, it, it ends up being if you're a third round pick. So I it, it will be interesting to see how teams and players uh, and professional organizations continue to evaluate that dynamic moving forward. Um. You mentioned Matt Keating there, and I said that I didn't think anyone got cleaned out, and uh, I neglected to think about UNC, which lost Keating and their their top high school recruit, uh, Brooks Brandon, in back-to-back picks of the eighth round. Uh, they also lost a whole bunch of, of guys uh, off of their 2022 roster. It wasn't all bad news. Matt Horvath is coming back. Tom Tomas Frick also did not get drafted. Neither did Alberto Ozuna put those guys with Vance Honeycutt and you have a really, really strong core of the lineup, but uh, both Palermo and Rap, their one, two guys in the, in the bullpen were picked. Um, the, uh, they, they lost a couple other guys, Zarate, um, Danny Soretti, th- those were expected, uh, but it was, uh, it was not a great week for UNC overall. And, and that eighth round one, two punch of, of of Brandon and Keating must have uh that must have hurt in Chapel Hill. Yeah, that would have uh yeah, wherever Scott Forbes was watching the draft at that point, maybe he wasn't like super, you know, just because it is a busy time for college coaches right now. But yeah, you, I would have been interested to see his reaction when that goes bang bang. Just uh th- there were several, you know, one, two picks. Uh I think Arkansas and Kentucky both had players picked in, in consecutive selections. Just a uh, little little fun bits of, of of things that happened in the draft. Uh it was probably a little more fun than seeing two recruits picked uh with, with back-to-back selections the way UNC uh took it there. Um I, I often think about uh just quickly I I haven't thought about it from the coaching side like what happens in that situation with Scott Forbes but I do uh pour one out for uh our friends, the the baseball SIDs, when I see players from the same school get drafted in back-to-back picks, and I just think about the poor SID who's like hurriedly trying to put the graphics together to tweet them out. And he's like, crap, could I not get like 10 picks between these guys so I can prepare the <laughs> graphics, please? Uh, yes, that uh, busy time for everyone. That is, uh, that is for sure. Uh, so obviously the draft has dominated the show, dominated everything in, in amateur baseball over the last week. Um, tried to get to as much of it as we could here, Joe. Um, anything else, uh, any other last takeaways from the, uh, from the draft experience for you though? No, it, it is a, it's just a nice, um, one thing I do like about the draft being a little bit later is it does feel like there is kind of a, like a real transition here, right. Where, um, you know, we, we, we have summer ball is kind of in full swing and, and there are guys who, uh, and pardon my, uh, for the, for the listeners, we usually get Millie in the background, but now we've got Jake, my dog in the background who, um, Millie's you know, is, 
is kind of uh, working on something in, in his throat there. There we go. Um, <laughs> but he, uh, he was, he was struggling there for a second. All good though. Um, there is kind of a, a turning over a new leaf here where the, the draft is behind us. And because it's later in the summer, summer ball is kind of winding down. I mean, there's still a solid several weeks left in this thing. I'm not saying that, you know, it's the last dregs, but you know, it's where things start to do kind of slow down a little bit. Players will be back on campus in a matter of, of weeks as opposed to months. And so it, it really does provide kind of a, a little more of a clean break than, um, an earlier draft uh, would in that regard. So it, it does allow us to kind of maybe turn our attention a little bit to, because we have, okay, the transfer portal is going to more or less close up. Like we, we've, the drafted players are going to sign here within the next 10 days or so. Um, we are going to have a, at least a, a clearer picture of what college baseball is going to look like um, pretty soon, as opposed to, you know, with the June draft, it did kind of stretch things out a little bit more. That is definitely true. The signing deadline is 12 days away. It's August 1st this year. Um, so coming up relatively quickly here, uh, the Cape League All-Star game is uh, is this weekend. Uh, so a lot of, a lot's still happening in the college baseball world. I think the Northwoods All-Star game was last night, counter-programming the Major League All-Star game, I guess. Uh, but uh, so yeah, we are we are in the middle of, of summer, even if we're not in the exact middle of summer league schedules um we're uh, we're rolling right on through here though and uh we'll continue doing that here on the baseball america college podcast so if you're not subscribed to the baseball america podcast you can do so on your favorite podcasting app apple apple podcast spotify stitcher wherever you get your podcasts uh, make sure you hit that subscribe or follow button and we will continue coming at you once a week throughout the off season uh, pretty soon, Joe and I are going to be bringing on guests weekly. So if there is anyone in the college baseball universe that you would like to hear from, let us know and we'll uh, we'll see what we can do. We're, uh, we're usually pretty good about getting uh, getting the folks we want on the podcast. So uh, drop us a drop us a line on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy B.A. Or if you are an Apple podcast user, you can leave that in the comments and uh we're uh we're excited to uh start asking some people what their favorite sandwiches are again so uh exciting times ahead here in the off season uh and there's a lot to read over at baseballamerica.com uh wrapping up the draft from a pro perspective from a college perspective really anything you want to read on the draft or uh much more uh, minor league baseball, the all-star game, et cetera. You can find that all on the website and I would encourage you to, uh, to check it out. All right, Joe and I will be back here next week uh, with another episode uh, still working on the days. So that's why subscribing is important. It's the off season. We'll, uh, we'll get into a, a, a rhythm here sooner or later, but um, thank you all for listening to, to this episode uh, and we'll talk to you next time. For Joe, I'm Teddy. Thanks for listening. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.